At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is William Poole, John Goldsworthy Fellow and Tutor in English at New College, University of Oxford. It's great to have Will on the programme. We're going to be talking about his new book, Milton and the Making of Paradise Lost, recently published by Harvard University Press. Will, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. Can you tell us something about yourself before we begin talking about the book itself? Of course. Well, I'm a tutor at Oxford University, and I specialize in 17th century literature, but I also have interest in 17th century history and in bibliography. Uh, Milton has long been a person I'm extremely interested in. I did my doctorate on him and was very interested in the theology of his great poem, Paradise Lost. Um, and that's an interest that I've carried on with, um, and the most recent result is this book, Milton and the Making of Paradise Lost. Great. Well, how does the book relate to some of your previous projects? You've published a lot, Will, haven't you? Yeah, so I guess that I started out thinking about Milton, and then I went away from Milton for a bit, and I tried to think about areas that we might think of as intellectual history, about history of science, uh, about bibliography and the materiality of books, history of ideas. Um, and when I came back to Milton, I think I wanted to take those larger, more historically grounded concerns back with me, really, to see whether I could look again at what we say about Milton, whether I could bring some freshness, perhaps, um, to some of the approaches uh, that I had been reading. It's, it's such a phenomenally uh, contested area, isn't it, Milton Studies? There's a huge volume of material gets published every year, it seems, uh, yeah. How do you stay on top of all that, and how do you work <laughs> out something new to say? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess in one sense, you don't stay on top of it all. It's one of those areas of literary production that's become an industry unto itself. It has two bespoke journals. It, it has a press that turned out books more, almost more or less on Milton. Um, and in a certain sense, that can be damaging because it can turn the whole business into an echo chamber where people are really discussing one another's interpretations and they lose contact with an awful lot of the primary literature that they're actually dealing with, particularly an awful lot of the books that are written not by Milton, but by Milton's contemporaries, or the books that Milton is reading, or the books that are written in immediate reaction to him. So I, I think my speciality really is almost as a bibliographer, is that I'm very interested in the big picture of, you know, what are the kind of books one reads at university? What are the kind of books you can buy in the bookshop? Um, what sort of literature are, are, are people reading at the time? And to try to put Milton back in that is one component in a really kind of rather large circuit. Um, and in a certain sense, by taking the spotlight off Milton as, as an individual surrounded by darkness, 
um, but to think about him really as one cog in a big machine of literary production, that we could actually see what kind of intervention he is making much with a much clearer eye. Now, one of the ways in which you do that in this book, which is a really fantastic book, is is to split the book in half almost and to have your first, yeah. uh, what uh, was it, 14 chapters? I can't remember offhand. Yeah. Uh, l- looking almost at biography, but, but it's a yeah. very inflected biography. And, and then pushing your very detailed and rich examination of the text towards the end of the book. It's, it's a, a really innovative structure. And, it, and obviously, you've, you've got lots and lots of chapters. The chapters are, are short and incredibly effective mm-hmm. because they are short. How did you come up with that strategy? Right. Well, I mean, I would love to say that it was an absolutely uh, perfectly designed mechanism from the beginning. Um, maybe it was a little more serendipitous than that. But nonetheless, it is a structure that I'm very fond of. Um, I'm very keen on trying to make the biographies of writers talk to their literary production, not simply to think about the biography as merely material for reading a poem. Um, Conversely, not thinking about poetry as simply historical evidence for an existence in the past, but try to see whether they can talk to one another. Um, whether there are any discontinuities between uh, the experience of a writer um, and really the meaning of the, of the writing that they produce. So it seemed to me in order to kind of test the relationship between authors and texts, I wanted to have a section about Milton's biography, which I could use really perhaps to push a slightly revisionist view of Milton's own biography, to rephrase some traditional approaches in, in a slightly new way about what his experiences meant to him. But then having done that, to turn to the poem and to think about the poem as a product, particularly of a precise educational environment that Milton came out of. One of the things that struck me about this when I was thinking about the book again is, you know, what was Milton's job? Um, Hmm. If you ask anyone, you know, who was John Milton, hopefully they'll say, well, he wrote Paradise Lost. It's a famous poem. Um, And the slightly more engaged people will say, well, he was a very important political figure and he wrote pamphlets that argued for various kinds of liberty and he was... He had something to do with Cromwell, and he believed in the execution of kings who had turned into tyrants. And that's all fine. That is all true. But nonetheless, when I looked at his biography, particularly before he became an, an employee of, um, of, the, uh, of the English Republic, and then after that of the Cromwellian regime, if you were to say, well, what does this man do? There are two answers to that. The first is he's a man of leisure. He doesn't have to do anything. His father had made a, um, some very... Um, intelligent financial decisions that meant that Milton really didn't have to work. The second answer is that he chose to work, and what he chose to work out was as a teacher. Um, He ran what we would think of as a private academy. Um, He wrote a blueprint of of how that academy should work, and he had a a roster of quite impressive young students, and he put them through this extraordinary education. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because now we actually have a, a biography which is all about teaching people a certain way of reading a certain kind of text. And then we have an enormous literary production that the man who's designed all of this came up with himself. And so the obvious question was, well, how do these relate to one another? So that's how biography and criticism fit together for me, is that they're kind of testing grounds for one another. As for short chapters, I'm rather fond of short chapters like this because uh, frequently, I read books of this length on Milton that consist of two or three chapters, which are you know, <laughs> extremely rambling and reflect a great deal about the author and not very much about the subject. Um, and it seems to me that they are books written for academics. They are written for people who are interested within the trade of what the minute manu- maneuvers within this kind of Milton business are. 
I'm not very interested in that. I'm a teacher myself, and I, I spent all of my time trying to teach undergraduates um, about how to get into a poem and speak about it intelligently in a historically grounded way. And the best way to do that is to have fact-packed short chapters. And so I guess my justification of it is that my audience is really you know, the intelligent general reader um, and the undergraduate. Um, and I think that this is the best way of writing a book for that audience. Well, you're very modest the way you put that. Well, there's a huge amount here for scholars as well, isn't there? Uh, because you do challenge a number of conventions within Milton biography, and you give us a very convincing and, 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 and winsome view of his early religious experience as conformable Puritanism. Could you just talk us through, mm -hmm. first of all, what that means, and perhaps secondly, why that's relevant to his career as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you put your finger on it. Um, I wouldn't say it's entirely my innovation, but I hope that I've pushed this in a direction that, that shows you a little bit about you know, how this rendered uh, Milton's background really rather tense for him and how he fitted in, um, and that that has ramifications for his own literature. Well, we tend to think about the period, um, I mean, people who are experts probably don't, but if you ask anyone who's got a reasonable general knowledge, they'll say, well, the 17th century, in the middle of it, there was a big civil war, and on one side, there were people who believed in the established church in Anglicanism, and they believed in bishops, and they tended to believe in kings as a result. And on the other side, there were people who were Puritans. These were roundheads. They didn't believe in bishops. They didn't believe in the established church. Now, of course, that kind of polarization, um, real historians have thought for a long time that that won't do, and that actually a great number of people were somewhere along a spectrum of total conformity to a complete separatism. Um, Traditions of Miltonic biography had thought, well, in age, we have a man who is famous for justifying the execution of kings. As a middle-aged man, he wrote pamphlets defending divorce, uh, pamphlets defending the freedom of the press. Um, he was a man who was interested in educational reform. This looks to me like a kind of Puritan reformer. Um, and therefore, at all stages of his life, when we look back, we must seek the, the trail of that biography, that, that is the master text, is that the man in age should direct all of the, of the thoughts of the man as he, as he grows to maturity. But that isn't really the way human lives work. They're a bit more complicated than that, and we tend to find ourselves inside a club, and only very gradually do we kind of move to the peripheries of the club and occasionally outside the club entirely. The category of conformable Puritan was invented to express, uh, to give a term for the identity of the people who still remained within a national church. They were still people who believed that it was a good idea to have a national church, but that they themselves wished it to be reformed from within. So they didn't want to leave it, they wanted to stay in it and reform it. And I think that Milton, as it were, particularly in his upbringing, was definitely on the inside of the church and not the outside. And it is a mistake to seek uh, to seek the adult in the boy, if I could put it that way. It's much more interesting to ask how people change over time. When you look at Milton's early biography, we don't see a man who was born to be the great Puritan poet of the English people. We actually see a fairly prosperous middle-class boy born into a family that clearly have no problem going to the established church, but probably a family that have tastes for the more Puritan end um, of reform within that church. We look at Milton's education. He was homeschooled for a bit by a, um, a Scottish uh, um, priest called Thomas Young. We used to say that he was a Puritan because an early biographer said, well, he's a Puritan. But actually, this, this chap Young was, um, was quite happily being a chaplain for the English church abroad 
This was probably because he too wished strongly for reform within the church, but was nonetheless a conformable member of that church. That background for Milton is somebody who wanted to reform systems from within, or at least started out as someone who wanted to reform from within. Seemed to me a rather important corrective to a, a rather simplistic tradition that wanted to see Milton as always a kind of Puritan hero. Um, I think that human biographies are more complicated than that. Mm. There's, for, for all that there's diversity and, and growth and change in his religious opinion, one of the things that Milton always believes in, as you show, is himself. Uh, yeah. and, and you describe uh, beautifully those early ambitions to write a great national epic. Yeah. His, his tour of Italy, um, his um, being recognised in Italy as, as a writer of extraordinary promise, if not achievement, um, mm. if, if you look at those epigrams that you describe. Can you tell mm. us about this ambition to write an epic? Why, if, if, if we can answer this, how it began, how it was expressed, yeah. how, how early this emerged, and perhaps how surprising this might have been? Yes, I, well, that's a very good question because it's not often that we have an author that starts out their literary career saying that they're going to write the national epic and nothing happens for a few decades and then all of a sudden there it is. I mean, I've always thought of this as the most extraordinary kind of check written and then cashed in, in literary history. Um, how does this come about? Well, rather incongruously, what we know is that Milton as a young man had toyed with the idea of writing an epic. Um, I'm sure lots of ambitious young men writing poetry do you think that. They don't think that they're going to, to write little verses for the rest of their life. They think, what's the big project that I'm gearing myself up to? Milton, I think, really from his late teens, thought that somewhere along the line there would be a great work or two. He wasn't quite sure what they would be about. He wasn't quite sure what genre they would be. He gradually started thinking, well, I need to write an epic. And what do you write an epic on? You write it on the sort of nationally interesting stories. So what nationally interesting stories have we got? We've got the Arthurian legends. And actually, many of his early references seem to suggest that what he's going to do is write an epic on Arthurian themes. And that would, that would be his contribution to that genre. At the same time, he also thinks that really good writers write plays. And we know from the late 1630s, probably around about 1639 or 40, he starts writing down lots and lots of ideas for dramas. Now, what do you write a drama about? Milton, I think, is... Uh, is a kind of at the Puritan end enough not to see himself as writing for the popular stage, which at that point is about to um, be shut by the, uh, the long parliament anyway. So he thinks of a slightly more humanistic form of drama with some kind of morally improving subjects. What could be more morally improving than episodes from the Bible um, or from the deep English historical past? So he writes down a series of stories from the Bible that could be turned into plays, and one of them he calls Paradise Lost. Hmm. So we've got a situation where you've got a man who wants to write an epic, but he thinks it might be on Arthur. And the same man wants to write a play, but he thinks it might be on the fall. Mm. And then at some point, he realizes that what he needs to do is combine these projects and, and cut the extraneous bits off. Yes, I will write an epic, but it won't be on Arthur. It will be on the fall. And I think that that's the kind of crucial aha moment in his development. We're not quite sure when this happens. Um, but the take-home point from this really is that he starts out writing the, the thing that we think of as Paradise Lost as a play. And we actually know from one of the earliest biographers that, that serious chunks of this existed somewhere in the 1640s. When he was a schoolmaster, he recited a, a section of this play to one of his students, actually his nephew, his first biographer. Um, and it is very obviously a soliloquy given by Satan in, in the text we think of as an epic poem, Paradise Lost. 
So Milton uh, first tells us that he's going to write this poem, uh, by us, I mean a kind of reading public, um, actually in a pamphlet war in the early 1640s. He's been in Italy, and I think he's encountered um, Italian literary societies, and these excite him because nothing exists like this in Britain at the time. Um, and Milton is culturally in love with the Italians, even though he doesn't like their, their religion. But Milton thinks, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if I could go back home and there was a, there was a literary salon in which uh, people kind of stood up and recited their most recent compositions. And he went to several of these and he recited his own. And I think he came back from this trip in the late 1630s all fired up with the possibilities of really making it um, as a literary sensation. And the Italians loved him. It's unusual to find an Englishman who spoke both Italian and Latin so well as Milton did. And so he came home having been seriously patted on the head by the Italians and he was ready to go. But what he found when he got back was a country in turmoil, um, a country worrying very strongly about you know, whether we should have bishops or not. Um, and Milton put down the pen in his right hand, as he put it, the, the, the poetry pen, and he picked up the pen in his left hand. This is his phrase, which is his prose pen. Um, and he started writing pamphlets um, that intervene in this debate. This is where something peculiar happens. Milton could really, in some senses, have decided to defend the status quo. He could have said, well, look, I'm a relatively well-off middle-class boy with a nice education. Um, I've been educated really kind of within the church. Um, and I could say to the people who are trying to turn everything upside down, reform is one thing, but destruction is another. Let, let's, let's not destroy things. But actually, Milton went to what we would think of as the kind of left side of the argument, is that Milton said, no, actually, we should get rid of bishops entirely. We should destroy this order and all the political power that they have. Um, this is when we start seeing Milton becoming closer and closer to a radical Puritan. And this didn't go down well at all with uh, people who bothered reading such pamphlets. And he was attacked, and he was attacked personally, um, as people did in pamphleting at the time. Um, and his attacker said, well, you don't want to read this pamphlet by this young man, John Milton. He's a dreadful chap. I remember him at Cambridge. He was only interested in going to the pub and going to see plays and hanging around with women. Um, and none of this is true, of course. And Milton is utterly stung. He had very, very thin skin. Um, and Milton replies in his next pamphlet and says, you know, not only was I extremely well behaved, um, but I didn't really like theatre. I didn't go to plays at all. I, 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 I disliked contemporaries of mine who went to see comedies. Um, he says, I'm still extremely virginal. I never consorted with women. But most of all, I'm going to write the great poem. It's at that point that we get the public promise made. This is sort of 1641-ish. Remember, Paradise Lost isn't published till 1667. Um, so it really takes him two and a half decades to make good on this promise. Um, but that is the origin of the poem. He had two projects, one in drama, one in epic. He combined them. Um, he went to Italy. This gave him some inspiration. He came back home. He got involved in, in really, in some ways, a rather distracting campaign. And when attacked for it, he suddenly made his boast. I shall write the great poem. And, and so he did. Meanwhile, he is accruing all the wrong kind of reputation, isn't he? He, he, he wants to be recognised yeah. as a great national poet. He's not having the time, perhaps, to produce the poetry, at least uh, in, in published form, although, as you've mm. reminded us uh, in the book, parts of what become Paradise Lost are circulating, at least uh, w mm. within the schoolroom in that period. But, but, he, but he is a controversialist, isn't he? Yeah. In the 1640s. Yeah, and so how does he then recuperate his poetic reputation in the mid-1640s? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, it, and it, it brings out into the open again something else that we often forget is that people go through different phases 
Um, and the thing that they think will be the dominant dominant driver of their life in, in, you know, in one decade sort of fades into the background in the next, and then it comes back a little bit after that. And Milton is perhaps a bit like that. He is more pushed around by circumstance than he wishes to admit. Milton is a deeply egotistical writer who always likes retrospectively to say it was all part of a grand plan and I was in the driving seat all along. But it actually it's more complicated than that. You're quite right that he becomes a controversial figure almost against his own wishes. He picks up his pen to defend the, the, the Presbyterians who wish to say that bishops are not a separate um, religious order. There is no philological grounds for it in New Testament Greek, they would argue. And Milton thinks this is right, and Milton um, um, helps them out. At that point, it's not unusual to find a university-educated person of these views, as you yourself well know. Um, but it's thereafter that Milton starts drifting further and further um, out towards what we would think of as more heretical territory. Um, and the drift is, is slow, and it is very hard to calibrate precisely what are the drivers here. Um, most famously, what happens after Milton has bashed the bishops is that he gets married all of a sudden, and his first marriage does not go well at all. Um, Milton then, in a very Miltonic way, reads himself out of the problem and decides that he needs to write a book, and this book is going to be about how one should divorce. Um, Obviously, one can divorce on certain grounds in the period, but you can't do it on the grounds of mental inco uh, incompatibility. You can't say that we just don't get on. Um, and Milton launches this extraordinary argument, which is that God wouldn't really want us to remain together if we didn't get on. We, we must be able to dissolve a relationship when it just isn't working. It's interesting thinking ahead to Paradise Lost and how Adam and Eve get on and how they talk to one another. Yeah. But when Milton published this book, I genuinely think that he was not ready for the reaction that it got. What happened was everyone screamed heretic at him. And Milton, in a, again, a thoroughly Miltonic way, did well, the only thing Milton can do is he published it again with additions and said, well, you know, if you didn't get it first time, you'll surely get it this time. Meanwhile, he was also publishing works about the reform of education. Um, these works really were an attack on, on the established universities at the time. Milton's private academy would have rendered them redundant if anyone had wished to go through with his plans. And again, he is extremely angry at what he sees um, as the parliamentary regime renewing licensing laws about publishing your books that he had associated with the nasty regime of the 1630s, the Anglican regime of Archbishop Lord that had fallen, and he saw that the new administration was just repeating the mistakes of the old administration. And so he writes a pamphlet about, um, um, about how bad that is and how actually there should be no pre-publication censorship. So what we have is a person who's gradually writing himself into more and more radical positions. Of course, like the rest of us, Milton actually presumably thinks that he stays fixed and it's simply the world that gets uh, more conservative around him. But the reaction was, was a bad one and it hurts Milton. And I think that what happens, to return to your question about you know, how do you reconnect with the poetry, is that having been whacked about by, he's been called a heretic in Parliament. Some of the people for whom he wrote when he was uh, uh, in, the, in the early 1640s, when he was writing against bishops, they now no longer want to touch him with a barge pole. So how's he going to cheer himself up? How's he going to reaffirm some of his core values to himself? Well, he's going to gather together his poems and he's going to publish them. And this is what he does in 1645. He puts together a little volume of poems and publishes it, and he gets a very trendy publisher to, uh, to bring it out for him, actually a man who we associate mainly with royalist publishing. And as you turn over the leaves of this little book of the poems that he publishes in very late 1645, maybe early 1646, 
we're struck by actually how cavalier Milton's managed to make himself sound. There are poems he'd written as a young man on, on you know, in, in uh, lamenting the death of bishops, um, poems he'd written actually on the death of a Roman Catholic aristocrat, poems he'd written as a Cambridge undergraduate. You know, all of this sounds like cavalier poetry. You know, what is Milton playing at? On the one hand, we have a person who's becoming more and more politically radical. And on the other hand, we've got someone who's starting to look a, 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 like he might have sort of long ringlets in his hair and be uh, writing poems about the death of the king's cause and great mourning. Now, how do you fit these two sides together? So that was, that was a very interesting question to me. And some of it, I think, was that Milton thought that his poetic vocation was more important than political partisanship. Um, and that he wanted to reconnect with this vocation by, by looking back at all the poems he'd written in the 1630s, gathering them together, and saying to his audience that I am various. I have gone through various phases. When I was a student, I wrote this poem, um, lamenting the death of a kind of promising Anglican clergyman. And here's another lamenting the death of a, of a university figure. But that's okay. Poets change over their careers, and my entire career is important. So I think that, that uh, to return to an earlier comment you made, is, a, is an interesting point about how to fit biography and poetics together. Milton, I think, thought that his vocation as a poet was bigger than the individual moments of his biography, and that his poetic portfolio was allowed to witness to a kind of more capacious, more contradictory identity than perhaps biographers themselves like. You know, we like to follow the, the fiery track of the idea through a person's career. But I think that, that Milton was various, and, and that his 1645 poems were really trying to say to himself as well as others, I may be the man who defended divorce, I may be the man who defended the freedom of the press, but look, I also write these beautiful masks. I write these beautiful sonnets. Um, you know, I am a proper late humanist intellectual, and I have very various thoughts, and I'm allowed to have them. So Milton is generically various, uh, as you've, you've just described. When does he, or, or how does he become religiously various? Yes, well, now that is another very interesting question, and it's one that exercises people who, again, who worry about how to put biography and, and, and text together. Because we don't have enough information about this. Again, it used to be assumed that one should be able to detect the idiosyncrasies of, of, of the old man in, in the young man. Remember, Milton publishes Paradise Lost in 1667 when he's completely blind. He was born in 1608. There are a lot of years between those two points. And what we're dealing with in, in many ways is a rather murky transformation um, theologically in his mind. Well, if I was going to make um, a guess about it all, what I would say um, is that Milton was actually educated in, in Cambridge University um, under peculiarly Arminian um, tutors and in a kind of rather Arminian background. Now, what do I mean by that? The, the, the two standard positions that people talked about at the time um, in, in theology were um, Calvinists versus Arminians. Um, to put it extremely crudely, um, the Calvinist is somebody who thinks that uh, God gives us grace and we don't earn it for ourselves, and that therefore it may follow that God has all worked it out from the beginning and that there is no such thing as free will. An Arminian will say, no, we win grace for ourselves. God offers it, but we have to take it. And as a result, therefore, we must have the free will to do that, and therefore there is no predestination. Now, you know, as you all know, that is an extremely crude way of putting it, but the interesting thing with Milton is to work out where he stands on this, because Paradise Lost is very obviously an Arminian epic. Milton is so convinced that free will is the only way of making moral sense of our actions that he brings God himself on in book three of his epic. 
who argues in extremely stentorian terms that free will is really the only model by which uh, God himself can be exonerated um, from the charge of having created evil. How early on did Milton believe this? Um, one used to think that he was brought up in a fairly uh, Puritan background, and whether we want to call that conformable or otherwise, the odds would be that he would have had a Calvinist upbringing. It's starting to look less likely that that is true. There's no real evidence um, that Milton was strongly influenced by Calvinists or by Calvinism as a young man. And the first uh, statement we get about his views on this is a kind of thumping statement in his, his tract on the freedom of the press, Aria Pagitica in 1644, in which he says the famous line beginning, I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed in which he, he utters this great prose hymn to the, the virtue of struggle, of ethical struggle, what we call cognitive virtue, of struggling against odds. And the more one looks for this apparent Calvinist beginning in Milton's thought that gradually became Arminian, the less one really discerns it. And actually Milton appears to have had an Arminian mindset throughout, I think. Now this may betoken in some senses his own extreme self-confidence. Uh, um, I think Milton found it intolerable that he was in some sense merely a kind of uh, piece of software or, or piece of hardware, let's say, in, in, in God's grand computer, um, and that someone else was running the program that he hadn't written. Milton himself thought that he had to be in control of this. But of course, that is only one uh, religious peculiarity of Milton, and it was one that was shared by a lot of people, including those, importantly, on the opposite ecclesiastical side. Arminianism is something we typically associate with exactly the people Milton didn't like with certain elements of the high Anglican church, though not all. Um, but Milton himself had some stranger views that came on over time. We only really know about this through his massive prose Latin treatise, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian doctrine, in which really a kind of rather late example of this genre, in fact, he tried to set out in systematic form what his beliefs are, uh, and, and how he could justify them by biblical citation. It's here where we start to see an awful lot of things which even Arminians would regard as deeply peculiar. First of all, Milton is an anti-Trinitarian. He doesn't think um, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost are one being. He does not think that they are all co-eternal. He is quite clear um, that if uh, the Son is begotten, then he must be begotten in time. And so there was a moment in creation where there was only God, then God creates his son, and then he creates everything through his son. So this is a position we call Arian, and that is getting into territory which is extremely hot water for Milton and his contemporaries. He has other views as well. We've mentioned his views on divorce. He probably had corresponding views on polygamy. I don't think he thought that the Old Testament practice of polygamy had been entirely abrogated in the New Testament. Um, and he also had what I wrote about in the book, as, as a kind of extreme Protestant view of scripture, and, and this is one that really will take us back to the poem. Milton, like a good Protestant, said that uh, when one reads scripture, one is assisted by, by the Holy Ghost, um, helping you out. Um, and he called this the inner scripture, which is the kind of the words of God written in your heart and, and not the words on the page. And this is simple biblical stuff, you know, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. And so, so far, so good. And no Protestant would disagree with that. Milton then sort of turns up the volume on the, uh, on the argument a little bit, and he says, well, if we've got the external scripture, that's, you know, thou shalt not divorce, let's say, and you have internal scripture that says, well, thou shalt divorce in some cases, because God wouldn't really want it to be otherwise. 
what do you do? If you really think as a Protestant that you're being internally assisted, illuminated um, by, by a supernatural forces when you're reading the Bible, what trumps? Is it the words on the page or is it the external scripture or is it the internal scripture? And Milton says, again, in quite a Protestant way, really, it's the, inter it's the internal scripture. It, it, it's what, what God says to you in your heart that matters. But this produces a problem. What happens when the two are in collision, when you read something that you don't agree with? Milton is quite clear that in those situations, the human exegete, as long as they are assured that God is assisting them, has the power to override external scripture, to rewrite scripture, as it were. I got very interested in that heresy, if you want to call it that, because it seemed the ideal state of mind to be in if one wanted to write a biblical epic, mm. that one was then going to ask the divine assistance to write. In a certain sense, it, it gets us across the bridge um, from theology to literary practice, where Milton writes a poem which in some senses he believes to have a relationship to scripture. He believes he is inspired, and he believes he has a kind of model of biblical criticism that responds to that, that he is in some sense rewriting the Bible. Now, in the book where you describe this, Will, you, you gesture towards Quaker context, with the similarities mm. in Quaker theology for that yeah. kind of argument, isn't there? And yeah. it's striking as well, you remind us of this in the book, that uh, a number of Milton's closest associates, those with whom he shares his published, or his not yet published work early on, are themselves Quakers. Does, 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 is it possible for us to map Milton onto any of the available theological communities in England at yeah. that time? Yeah. So that, that again, is, is a, a very interesting question um, about where are we to place the late Milton? Um, most of the changes that I just described, you know, you asked me, can, can we put a number on this? Did this happen in 1645? Did it happen in 1658? Whatever. Yeah. Most of the time, we just don't know. Uh, we think that the day doctrina was, was taking form somewhere um, around the Restoration. Um, Paradise Lost is taking form roughly at the same time, and, and that is one reason why the theologies of both are so closely intertwined. Um, but we don't know whether that reflects a position that Milton had had been in for some time, or whether really it was the act of assembling all of this that gradually kind of pressed his thoughts into this direction. In other words, are we are we looking at a mobile, dynamic process, or are we looking at a series of opinions that Milton had reached some time ago? Mm. Certainly, by the Restoration, um, I think that that Milton's views had shifted towards. Um, uh, a series of ideas and practices that people have associated with Quakerism. Now, uh, uh, what might that mean? Well, Milton doesn't appear to go to church. He doesn't seem to think that actually taking, uh, participating in any liturgical context is, is necessary for, for belief and for the practicing of belief, and we might think that's a bit Quakerish. Um, Milton has a view about the inner light that when pushed very hard starts to look a bit like what Quakers would say as well. Uh, Milton has a kind of very scholarly interest in, in biblical text, but at the same time has a view that really uh, we can be inspired to rewrite what we're, what we're reading if it doesn't seem quite right for our, our spiritual situation. And that's led several people to say, well, we've got, as it were, um, a continue, continuation in ideas between Milton and Quakerism, and we have some biographical context as well. Um, Milton has a, a famous Quaker pupil, uh, Milton uh, in the uh, Great Fire, Great Plague, uh, moves out of London to stay uh, in a village with some Quaker friends. And so there's, there's a very good context there. When you look at it actually right at the level of doctrine, though, it becomes harder and you start to realize that Milton really is a peculiar beast. You can map bits of him 
onto various sects or heresies at the time or uh, or anything like that. But he he doesn't fit exactly into any particular uh, um, classification. To give you an example, Milton goes to immense trouble to write a very long poem about original sin, about the fact that Adam and Eve uh, did something they weren't supposed to do, and as a result, um, they fell into a condition of original sin. They propagate this to all of their progeny, and that the only way to get round this is for God to uh, make himself as a man and sacrifice that man so that the God-man can pay the debt that man needs to pay, uh, but only a God could truly do. That's really quite orthodox theology. Milton is not skeptical about the existence of original sin, that certain of the more kind of far-out sects would be. Um, He's often been likened to the Socinian heresy as well. They famously said there is no original sin. Um, Milton clearly believes that original sin is is an important theological concept to retain. Um, At the other end of the scale, um, because there is original sin, we need an atonement. Um, Christ needs to die for our sins. It's not simply an exemplary sacrifice in which Christ allows himself to be executed simply because it's a, it's a jolly good idea to give people a push towards virtue. It's because there's a kind of divine transaction that needs to happen. A debt needs to be paid. And Milton, in those senses, is, is really um, a person who Presbyterians and Anglicans alike could actually agree with on these matters. Um, but that some of the more far-out sects, for instance, Quakers, would have regarded these as doctrines that could have been overcome. Um, that they have no real need of that any, uh, anymore. So I think Milton is a rather kind of complex amalgam of tendencies. There is no one quite like him, mm. is the easiest way of putting it. Mm. Well, it's a wonderful book. Uh, well, it really takes us through not only Milton's biography or, or his biography as, as a lens towards working uh, in this poetic medium and to this end. It's also a book that helps us think about the structure and themes within and influences upon the poem itself. Um, how soon does Paradise Lost become a classic text? Mm-hmm. Right, well, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, we're so used to the idea of it being a being a classic text that we we barely bother reading it anymore. I think it turns up now and then on curricula, but it's regarded often as quite difficult. I'll tell you something. The first time I read the poem, I put it down. Um, I couldn't quite cope with it. Um, and then, then I didn't. Then I picked it up properly and, and I read it reasonably. But it's now the single poem I've spent more time with than any other work of literature. And I can easily say that my first interaction with it was not a successful one. So, you know, tough poem. What's going on here? How did it make it? Well, it was published in 1667 um, by Milton when he was completely blind. It's something we haven't talked about much, but it, it, it strikes me as remarkable that this poem was written in the dark by a person who was really... Uh, now a political and social exile, sitting on his own. Um, his property had gone up in the Great Fire of London. Things were really looking miserable for him. And somehow this man managed to see through the press a rather long and difficult work. And when you look at the, the first edition of this poem, it, it's really nothing much to look at. It, it, it doesn't have a, an impressive picture of Milton. It doesn't have lots of dedications to well-known aristocrats. It doesn't have lots of publisher's puff, anything like that. You just get straight into the poem. Um, It starts to accrete this as more and more editions come out, but it's important to think about how modest the first one was. It's not a very big book. Um, It's not an imposing folio. Um, It it has one slight thing about it that that makes me pause, though, which is that the printer 
uh, must have been instructed to put line numbers down the side. So every 10 lines has got, got a number next to it. Now, this is exactly the strategy of a classical text that you're being taught in a classroom, where you need to refer to it. And the teacher says, right, open your books at uh, you know, Virgil, book two, line 400, and we'll go from there. You can do that with Paradise Lost right from the first edition. And that is almost unique in English publication history at that point. So Milton clearly already in the first edition has his eyes on becoming a classic. But obviously, just because you want to become a classic doesn't mean you will become a classic. What has to happen? Well, in my book, I say that there are four things that make you a classic. Um, the four things that have to happen to a text at this point is that, first of all, someone's got to write a commentary on it. It's got to be so important that it needs a kind of book to explain it. Um, and in many ways, I hope that that's what mine is. It, it, it's basically a, a commentary on Paradise Lost. Um, the second thing is that it needs to inspire other people um, and so to influence their literature. So it needs to be imitated. It needs to, uh, to change the course of how literature is written. Um, the third thing is that it needs to get translated into other languages, something we often forget. Um, but a text needs to uh, make a splash on the international scene, um, and that sort of paradoxically raises its game at home. And, and the fourth thing I, I say sort of slightly cheekily as a bibliographer as well is that it needs to get published in a bigger and more impressive format. It needs to come out as a folio. If you look at all these things, they all happen to Milton very fast very fast indeed. There is a commentary that comes out on all of his poem, a massive commentary um, by a kind of um, down-and-out school teacher, really, who's commissioned by Milton's publisher. And that comes out in 1690. Um, now, think about that. That's not even a generation after the poem itself. Is there a commentary on Shakespeare at this point? No. Is there a commentary on Chaucer? No. Milton is barely dead, and he has managed to generate one of these. Um, is it imitated? Yes, very quickly. People start um, writing poems in imitation of this, either on sacred subjects um, or in genres that are kind of closely allied to bits of Milton. The 18th century is absolutely full of what we call 18th century Georgic, which is um, often blank verse um, discussions of, of kind of um, uh, nature, of the seasons, and these are all kind of saturated, saturated piece of Miltonism, um, often kind of made up of partial quotations of Milton. You could say in many ways, actually, that he kind of stifled a lot of 18th century literature. Mm. Um, is he translated? Yes, very quickly. Uh, he gets translated into German by an acquaintance of his. So actually, you know, somebody who knew him, um, his colleague in the government, Theodore Hark, starts to translate into German. Um, very quickly, an Italian uh, translation is, is, is sort of attempted. Um, perhaps most interestingly to me, um, it becomes a, a whole cottage industry of turning Milton into Latin. Mm. Um, the, Milton is a very Latinate writer, and it seemed a very kind of schoolboyish thing to do, is to turn him back into the language to which he so often alludes. Um, and finally, he does indeed come out in a big folio edition as early as 1688. Uh, you know, he has not even been dead two decades before this happens. So he is probably one of the fastest publication to classic um, runs in English literary history. Uh, and those four stages really don't have anything to do with him. It was really the reading public in a, a, a number of quite complicated uh, movements turned Milton into a classic before his century was out. Um, and that is deeply unusual in literary history. And that's all the more surprising given the huge and often extremely controversial uh, range of, of literary, scientific, militaristic, historical reference that this poem makes. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but could you, just in one minute, 
pitch us reasons why every one of us must, must read Paradise Lost. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, you actually just put your finger on it there. You said there's a kind of, a, there's a sort of science in it, there's, a, there's battle in it. Um, if we think about what ancient literature gives us, it gives us some epics that are about battle. Let's think of Homer. It gives us um, some epics that are about um, the founding of a new world, as it were. Think of Virgil, the Aeneid. Um, it gives us poems about the wars of the gods and about the creation of the universe. Think about Hesiod. Milton does all of these things. One could think of his poem as a kind of massive combination of all the tendencies of ancient epic, kind of sellotate together. It talks about the fall of the angels. It talks about the fall of man. Um, the central books are all about the creation of the universe. The very final books are about the last days, about what will happen um, between now and the end of the universe. So Milton starts at the beginning of the universe for him, both kind of chronologically and scientifically. He ends right at the end with the second coming with the millennium. Inside that, he tells us everything about world history we need to know, at least from a religious point of view. And he does that through really hijacking all the major ancient epics, all the major ancient forms, and pushing them into his poem. It's the most extraordinary takeover bid in Western literature we have. He kind of dominates literature by crunching it all up and turning it to something new. That is why it is, to my mind, the most significant piece of English writing we have. And I, I will say to everyone listening that your book, Milton and the Making of Paradise Lost, is, is now the essential handbook to understanding just exactly how you can make those kinds of arguments and why we as readers have to engage with this text. Well, thanks for coming on to the show today. Um, thanks for sharing your work, Milton and the Making of Paradise Lost, just published by Harvard University Press. It's a phenomenal piece of work. Um, it's undoubtedly going to shape the field, but it's going to it's going to take the poem out to lots of people who have maybe never read it before as well. So thanks for your time and take care. Thank you. It's been very interesting talking to you. And thanks everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.